uh, it's fabulous to be here. In fact, all of us are ready to go home. The guys fly home. Josh, David, and Tyler fly home uh, tonight via Mars. Well, it feels that way. They're going by China, and uh, I fly tomorrow morning early straight back to L.A., and I think the four of us are ready. We've got two girlfriends waiting and a bunch of other women for David waiting for all of us to get home. Um, but, but this evening is a very special time. What's that? Yeah, well, well, Meryl, absolutely. We've been one for 38 years. And uh, so t- tonight is a very special night because I have the privilege, we did it this morning, we're going to do it this evening, of setting into office or ordaining or appointing um, uh, eldership into the life of this church. Let me just pause for a moment without taking too much time. As a student of history, this I know that every society and culture has an ingrained, an inwritten notion of eldership, or the old English used to speak aldermen, which is those men who provided leadership and government in the life of the cities, the states, the communities in which they were found and formed. And the scripture is gloriously uh, affirming of that in terms of both Paul the Apostle, Peter the Apostle, wrote very similarly that those who govern the church are fundamentally called eldership, or elders, plural, but there are three, and I'm going to cheat just a little bit, I'll explain four words that help us understand what they do. In a congregation like this, one would assume that there would be those who are Catholic, and so they would understand words like father, cardinal, bishop. There would be those who would be Methodists, or the like, congregationalists, who would maybe be more comfortable with words like reverend, minister, You'd have the AOG and Pentecostals who are more comfortable with pastor. You would have the egalitarians who don't who deconstruct the church, who don't believe in anything. And so you, you have all of this thrown together. Now let me say, the Bible uses three words, and why I'm going to cheat, I'll explain in just a moment, to help us understand, laser in from four angles to understand what these men and women do. The first is the word presbyteros from which we get the word elder, and it really also is all about government. It's about making sure, like days gone by when the elders sat at the gates, to make sure that there's government and there's order and there's health in the community. Great word, rich word. The second is episcopos, from which we get the word overseer or bishop, and that is those who provide oversight. They kind of do the 30,000-foot thing. They look out over the church to make sure that all the people, all the programs, all the plans are being lived out and effectively well-crafted for this church to be doing what God has called her to do. And this is then where I cheat a little bit, because I take one word and make it two, poimain, poimano, and the one speaks of the shepherd or the pastor factor, the love, the nurture, the care, the discipleship. But also, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, he leads me. And so the fourth component is the leadership piece. We're not spinning donuts in the parking lot, busy, lots of activities and programs, but really not going anywhere. The nature of eldership is to take the community on the adventure God has for them. Now, I'm going to call them up in a moment, but this I want you to understand. No one person but Jesus has all four of those effectively working currently in their lives. When I led Glenridge in South Africa, by the time I handed it over, it was about 1,000 people. I was great overseer. I love flying at 30,000 feet, planting churches, getting into the nations of the world. 
I loved leading. I loved being catalytic and, and ideating and creating and being entrepreneurial. Uh, pastoring, not so much. And so when there was a critique leveled against me that you really don't pastor well, I had to say, I know, I know, I'm sorry. I'm going to give a, have a go. And God looked at me and he said, you know what? I'm going to teach you that at 58. So we plant a little church, which we've just done, and, and I'm the oldest guy by a long chalk. And God says, I'll teach you to love people. So none of us have everything, but the team has everything. So I wonder if um, Wayne and Angela and Nat and Hannah will please come and stand up here. These are the two couples. Nat and Hannah we prayed over this morning. Wayne and Angela, we're going to pray over tonight so that both congregations get a feel of what it is we're trying to do. The glorious process and protocol that uh, is implemented here, the elders in dialogue with some of their the kind of global international friends speak into it, talk, pray, dialogue. They then bring the other deacons into the conversation. They dialogue and process, and the congregation then has opportunity to speak into it. And it's incredibly exciting. In such a culturally diverse community, such a culturally diverse city, to see God add such cultural diversity onto the team. So I'm going to ask the rest of the team now, just so that you see the two new couples, if the rest of the team will come up, please, and we're going to pray over them. If you guys want to pop up onto the stage as well. Okay. Thanks, Sean. So, what do we do? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us what to do. The Bible gives us a little squiz, a little insight for a moment, a fleeting moment. Paul says to Titus, he sends him off to Crete, which is a mess, and he says this, go and set in order that which is lacking and appoint elders in every town. Now, if you have a curious mind like mine, I'm kind of peeping between the verses to say, how? How do we do this? Oh, he doesn't tell us. And so what we do in the process of praying over and ordaining, they will be marketplace. Matt's on staff here. Hannah works for Emirates, who's a very clever person, who's a lawyer with Emirates and buys airplanes. Well, that's what I know. That's what she does. She buys airplanes. Like, you know, they come home and she says, Matt, how was your day? And he says, yeah, I counsel the people. How was yours? Oh, I bought three Boeings. You know, and it's like, ah, uh, okay. I don't know. So what we do is we use the Scripture. And um, I'm going to take John 10 as an example. Jesus is the good shepherd. I'm going to lead this precious couple through it. Now you ask me, Chris, if it seems like eldership is male, which it does, Father God, in the church, the, uh, at least in the home, the Bible says I'm the head of my home, which is the Greek word kephale, which is to resource, to empower, to believe in. Um, in the church, it seems to be that eldership is male. However, what I love about the text is that it's Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God says to Adam and Eve, increase, multiply, fill the earth. Uh, my wonderful wife, who is not here with me on this trip, and I have parented three kids. Girls are married. My boy is surfing and goes to college in between good waves. And uh, you know what? It's probably true that at least 50% of the parenting and investment Meryl did. And so that's why we bring the couple up. 
Because for them to be really effective in the life of the church, it's husband and wife partnering together with the team, partnering together to bring health, life, and vitality to the church called the family of God. How does that sound? Okay? So what we're going to do with them is I'm going to lead them through a prayer of commitment from John 10, which is Jesus the Good Shepherd. I'm going to pray a prayer. They're going to say, we will, a bit like a marriage. Then when we finish, I'm going to ask those of you for whom this is your home church to stand, and I'm going to lead you through a similar promise of commitment according to the Scriptures, because the Scripture is not silent on what the congregation does back to the leaders. Does that sound good? And then we're going to pray a final prayer, and then I'm going to open the Scriptures and do some teaching. And then I'm going to sleep, and then I'm going to go home to my wonderful wife. How good does that sound? And while you are having your day off, we'll be conducting our community meal together in L.A. How does that sound? John chapter 10. Do you, Wayne and Eric, Angela, I was just prophesying. (laughs) Okay. Sorry, my error. Do you embrace this evening the privilege and responsibility to join the rest of the team to provide shepherding, leadership, care, and oversight? Do you accept the privilege and responsibility to lay down your life for the sheep? Do you accept the privilege and responsibility today according to the scriptures to take care of them, protecting them from the wolf who comes in to rob, to kill, and to destroy? Do you accept the privilege and the responsibility of caring for these people in the good times and in the bad? Do you accept the privilege and responsibility as Jesus the Good Shepherd to know your sheep and that they know you? Do you accept the privilege and the responsibility today to exercise the authority God has given you with great mercy and with great care? Would you, the congregation for whom this is your home church, please stand? Hebrews chapter 13. There are two portions of Scripture that we want to similarly apply, that you accept the privilege and responsibility of leadership In a world that frowns at authority, that looks with disdain at leadership, we, the church, operate in a different culture, a culture of partnership, a culture of followership, a culture of honor and respect, weighing our words carefully whenever we speak of those in authority, those in leadership. They're not more important than us. This isn't a conversation of hierarchy. It's a conversation of gifting. And I similarly will say this over you, And I would ask that you respond as they did, yes, we will, or words to that effect. Please listen carefully. Because God has a habit of hearing these things. According to the Scriptures, well of life, do you accept the privilege and the responsibility as God has given you leadership to remember your leaders? Do you accept the privilege and responsibility of honoring them as they speak the Word of God to you and over you? Do you accept the privilege and responsibility to consider their way of life? Do you accept the privilege and responsibility to imitate their faith? 
you accept the privilege and responsibility to receive the leadership and the grace that it brings. You accept the privilege and responsibility of obeying your leaders and submitting to your leaders. For they keep watch over you as those who give an account. Do you accept the privilege and the responsibility to help them lead you with joy? And do you accept the privilege and the responsibility in followership to pray for them and over them regularly? Fabulous. Would you extend your hand toward them, please? What we're going to do now is just take a moment, and I will afford the uh, eldership team any opportunities they may want to pray before I pray uh, as well. Father, it's with great joy that we uh, pray for Wayne and Angela today, and we welcome them onto this eldership team. We, uh, we've watched your work in their lives, Lord God, and, and it speaks so clearly about um, the things that we see by observation. But also, Lord God, we want to thank you for what you have revealed um, from heaven, Lord God, about your call and about your purpose upon them. And we thank you that as they are um, set into this office today, and even probably as important, Lord God, into this team, uh, Father, that your grace would come upon them for what you've called them to. For we know that, Father, we are just jars of clay into which this um, extraordinary treasure is put. And so, Lord, we want to pray that you would use these jars of clay for your purposes, that you would be glorified, that your bride would be prepared, Lord God, that your sheep would be guarded, that the, uh, the church would advance against the gates of hell, Lord God, and that through our work together, Lord God, as a team and as a church, Lord God, that your purposes would be accomplished. We pray not only over them, but over their children as well. We pray um, for Lauren and Ellen, Lord God, still in the home and Catherine away. We just pray your grace be upon them as they share in this, um, this adventure together with their mom and dad, Lord God. And uh, we ask, gracious King, that you would knit our hearts together as a team, that, uh, Father, we would be a, a picture, Lord God, of that um, ordained unity that brings your command of blessing and your life. And we just, we just receive them with great joy today. In Jesus' name, Lord. Anyone else on team? Of course, Sarah. I just think that tonight is incredibly significant. And we've, we've heard about how they were, Matt and Rana were in their life group. And then they left and planted a life group in Abu Dhabi. And then Matt and Rana were able to to lead a church in Abu Dhabi because of that. And, and we look at this and we say, wow, but God is in the detail and everything matters to God and there's absolute significance in every moment of our lives. And, and what has happened is, wow, but there is more to come and God is going to be glorified. And I just sense such an empowering over the two of you tonight, just with that, that mantle of eldership that comes, you are empowered for more that the great stories are not the ones that have been told, but the greatness is what's to come. Thank you. Anyone else? Okay. Can you hold your hands here? Thank you. That's fabulous. Fabulous. Father, you get simple acts, simple ordinary human acts to do sublime, extraordinary things. I can't pretend to say I always understand why there's power in the laying on of hands, but you said it impartation that happens, there's a setting in place that happens, there's a mantle that comes upon us when it happens. And this evening, 
we recognize what they have done. We embrace what they are doing. We eagerly anticipate what is yet to come. We thank you for their bravery and their courage to help pioneer, to be keys in the door to new God adventures. And that is what they have done. That is what they will do. I pray for that ongoing courage to be fueled and seeded into the hearts of men and women, boys and girls in this church. At times they will say, Lord, what is it? Why are we on this team? What, what is our contribution? It will be the courage and the bravery to take on new adventures that have stimulated things in the past and will once again catalyze things into the future. That they will bring the oversight, the big picture conversations to keep this church in a global initiative, never settling down to living a, 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 a mediocre life in a massive city. But this will be a massive church by influence and impact into a global story. I pray, Lord, that you will protect their marriage and their family. I pray that there will be tons of laughter in the home, uh, mischief. That there will be lots of good, solid mischief, lots of good laughter. And even when the weight of eldership sometimes feels a little, uh, just a little too weighty, may, uh, may, may a giggle become a laugh, may a laugh become joyous, and may be reminded we're doing it as unto the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength. We set them in, Lord, into this team and watch with keen enthusiasm to see what you will do to them and what you will do through them at this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. All right. Thank you, those of you who are visiting. Whoa, 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 before you sit down, what do you do? You've got to hug somebody. And it can't be someone you know. You've got to go and hug somebody you don't know. You're right, Angela. You want me to help you down or are you okay? All right. Well, what a privilege it is to share in these special moments in a community's life. I was out praying early this morning and just saying, Lord, the message, to put together a message for an occasion like this is fun, but what is your greater intention? And a story came to mind, which I hope will illustrate it. When I was a senior at a high school or matric or whatever the equivalent is from your part of the world, I played first team rugby. Now, as you can see, I was never the tallest, the biggest, the strongest, or the quickest. So I knew I had to be the fittest. And so I trained uh, pretty much every day, sometimes twice a day, to be at the breakdown point, to be the forager, the carrier. And uh, as the season began, our hooker got injured. Now, if you don't know rugby, that sounds like a pretty weird thing, that to be a hooker is a good thing. Well, well, in rugby, it actually means something good, and so I became the hooker. And I know it sounds so funny as I say it, because I've been in America for 22 years, and so I'm like, well, I'm now a hooker. It just sounds really weird. But, um, but, but, but 
what, what used to frustrate me is we would fight for the ball, get it from the opposition, cycle it back. The scrum off or the fly off would get the ball for all of two or three seconds, hoof the ball down the field and yell something totally unconscionable by saying, under it forwards. And I wanted to say, you go under it. You know how we fought for that ball to recycle and to get it back to you? And now you hoof it down the field and you tell me to get under it? My job today and the privilege of everything else that's gone on is to help kick the ball down the field. Uh, This is the beginning of a new year, a new academic year. You've come back from your vacations. For some of you, Dubai is the wide-eyed, bushy-tailed first experience of the Middle East and some of the elegance and the beauty of what modern city life looks like. For others of you, the dust overwhelms you. There are no mountains, there are no trees, there are very little grasslands, and you are in the world of bewilderment. But, but, this community has had some anchor ideas established in it over the years. And all that I want to do is kick the ball down the field. I'm not pretending there's anything new. I'm not suggesting anything I have to say is particularly something you've never heard before. But I want you to understand as you step into this new year is that God has some pretty keen anchor ideas, some anchor um, notions that make well of life what it is. So grab your Bibles and we'll see what we can do. John chapter 3, please. There are four Jesus stories in the scriptures. For those of you who are less acquainted with the sacred text, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the most unique one because he's less fussed by sequence and he's more compelled by Jesus. Um, The others were very similar in rhythm and rhyme. This one is unique. And I love this because I feel we get insights of Jesus that's just slightly from his best buddy. And uh, we read this in John chapter 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabboni, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God or the rule and reign of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, this is an important moment. Repetition uh, in antiquity means this is an important thing. I really, really need you to get this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. Love this. You hear its sound. Listen, listen. Can you hear it? The wind blows where it pleases hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Verse 34, for the sake of time. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, so he gives the Spirit without measure. He gives the Spirit without measure. I have three simple ideas that I want to walk through with you. And there is, it's impossible to start 
without considering Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is an interesting man. Over the years, I've loved digging deeper and deeper into his life. We know instantly that he was an educated man because to be a ruler of the Jews or a Pharisee, it's very strange for him to have a Greek name. He should have been Jonathan or David. He should have been Joel. But he's got a Greek name. And instantly I'm intrigued why a ruler of the Jews would have a Greek name. And besides affluence and besides a sense of, of, of wealth, there's obviously a journey of education that he's taken. He, he's learned some things along the way. And that is interesting for me that he comes to Jesus, ladies and gentlemen, at night. And, and he inquires of Jesus, are you the one? Would you, would you mind telling me, are, are you the one? Now, there are a few things that are compelling to me and I think leaked into the very fabric of this church's foundation. Here it is, number one. Please never stop asking questions. I'm 60, just turn. And the temptation is that I've been around long enough to know a few things. And I can catch half a question of half a sentence, and I can have an answer that reels its way out of my mouth pretty soon. I'm a wordsmith. I love the idea of creating pictures with words so I can very easily give an answer without even knowing what the question is. Nicodemus humbled himself to go to Jesus and say, Are you the one? Merrill and I have had the privilege of being part of five moves of God, revivals, visitations, if you wish starting back in the Jesus People Movement, the Charismatic Renewal, and so on. And if I can be very honest, and I'm a little tired tonight, so it's possible that I'm more honest than normal. But <laughs> I plead with the Lord that I'm part of one more move of God before I go to be with Him. There's, a, there's an international rumbling, a murmuring of a divine visitation that's coming. Call it a revival if you want to, not my chosen phrase. Call it a reformation if you want to. A great word, great idea, not my chosen phrase. Because I want him to come. I want the one who stood outside of Jerusalem and wept. And he said, you've missed your day of visitation. Now, can I address my peers for just a moment? When we become the answer givers rather than the question askers, what happens is we posture ourselves to become irrelevant when God visits one more time. It's the heart of the humble, the vulnerable, the weak, the uncertain, who invariably is the one who becomes the leading catalyst of the new move of God. If you are in a move of God, or you have been walking with the Lord for a long time, as I have been, we are in danger of missing out the next move of God. Because God gives grace to the humble, but He resists the proud. Those who have all the answers will easily watch this great next visitation of God tsunami its way around the globe, and we will be but passive observers, missing the moment because we haven't asked the right questions. I find in Nicodemus a compelling man. I want to be the man who asks more questions than provides answers. I want to be the one who inquires of Jesus, are you the one? Am I at the right place at the right time for your next day of visitation? Or am I so preoccupied by the busyness of my daily life and my weekly world that I'm missing the key moments indicated that point 
to your next day of visitation. You know what's also interesting for me about Nicodemus is the power and the wonder of doubt. Doubt is dismissed by the church as somehow something irrelevant and actually worse, probably something unhelpful, like doubting Thomas. We, we, we don't talk about the martyr Thomas who died for Jesus. We talk about the one who doubted just a moment. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't think we ever reach a conviction but through the gateway of doubt. We dismiss doubt as if it's something absolutely irreverent and heretical. But I don't know if I have any conviction in my heart that hasn't come through the gateway of doubt as I've wrestled with God as Jacob did and God dislocated my hip. And in that moment of dislocation, now I get it. And I walk with that for the rest of my life. I love my wife. Met her at 15, led her to Jesus and married her at 18. Let's just get this thing over and done with. Love her. But there probably been two or three times in our marriage, I'm guessing, where we looked at each other across the room, tears streaming down both of our faces, thinking not always aloud, but sometimes aloud, I don't know if I should have married you. But I don't fear doubt. Because if doubt can take Thomas to becoming a martyr, then doubt can take my marriage and make it a deep and sublime conviction. You know how desperate or keen I am to see Meryl Diane at LAX on Saturday afternoon. You know how excited I am jumping into the Prius, Toyota, hybrid, save gas, minimize the plastic footprint on the globe, reduce the carbon footprint. Jesus is coming soon, I'm telling you. And as we find our 45 minutes back to Costa Mesa and we, we slip into our home and we have a glass of wine together and we dialogue about these 10 days, do you know that's the most exciting thing for me? That it's gone through the doorway of doubt where we looked at each other and I know she looked at me and said, did I really want to, uh, to marry an aggressive, angry Afrikaner? I don't know of another way. If there is, please tell me. But doubt is a traveling companion. It's not my residence. It's my traveling companion. Because I find truth when I go through that door. Does that make sense, folks? I hope it helps some of you for sure. Sorry, my computer just got stuck there for a moment. I love the story of Nicodemus. Please, can I say to you, please position yourself for the next move of God. Please do. Please. Every move of God, four things happen. I've been through five of them. I want to go through six of them. Number one, God chooses to reveal something about himself that we have ignored, neglected, or been ignorant of. And if we doggedly hold to our theology, please hear me. I love theology. I read theology every day. But if I presume a few words in a book can fully describe the eternality, endless omnipotence of my holy God, I am a fool of the worst kind. A few pages on a book of systematic theology never describe the full depth and wonder of the Jesus that I love. My Father who crafted this incredible journey and the Holy Spirit who indwells me and imparts power to me every day. 
every move of God, it's almost like God comes and says, I will teach you something about myself that you just don't know. And invariably those whose theology is defined and shaped, and I know what I believe, dismiss it and say, no, it's not in my theological catalog. The second thing that happens is ecclesiology shifts. I remember our first warehouse in 1979. The churches preached against us. How can you have church service? The first warehouse in South Africa used for church services. We were preached against, spoken against. We had a band. Because it was a restoration of the gospel to an herbal community of the broken and the bruised. We were in our, here was this suburban kid living in a communal house with ex-prostitutes and drug addicts and drug dealers and Big John who did time for killing a man in a street fight. Those were my housemates. Because God said, the city has been forgotten too long. Let me take the gospel back into the shadowlands of urban dwelling. See, it wasn't my choice. It wasn't cool and sexy. But then thirdly, mission shift. I preached on the street. Mike and I, we were just reminiscing yesterday over lunch. Uh, Forty years ago, he and I were these young whippersnappers on the street corners of Durban preaching the gospel. Two, three minutes to get people to bow their knee to the living Christ. Who was I? I was a deputy head prefect of a sophisticated boys' school who wore, who wore jackets and ties and bashes. And here I am preaching the gospel on the street because our mission had changed. Ladies and gentlemen, are you ready for sophistication and order to hold you captive? That God cannot disrupt your world with safety capitalism. Are you ready? Nicodemus was. We pick up the story with Nicodemus in John 9, I believe. John 7. Now remember Nicodemus was. This is just two brief points to make the close this part. John 7, Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. He was a Pharisee. I remember he came to Jesus at night. He didn't want to give himself away. He didn't want people to know who he was. And, and so the first time he begins to put his hand up ever so slightly is when the Pharisees say, let's kill him. And he looks around and he says, but the law says you cannot kill a man until he's had opportunity to defend himself. It's the first time he half lifts his hand up. He half steps out and says, uh, 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 and he appeals to the law. He appeals to what he knows. Oh, John 19. Let me make sure. Jesus is on the cross. He's dead. The disciples have scattered. The women are wailing. And Nicodemus and his mate Joseph of Arimathea wealthy men, men of influence, asked permission to lower Jesus' body from the cross. Pope Clementine says there was probably 33 kilograms of myrrh and other perfumes wrapped around his body. It was the funeral of royalty these two wealthy businessmen gave to Jesus. We know that Nicodemus died a martyr. We know that it took him probably a year and a half to two years to move from the one who tiptoed in darkness to stand out publicly when the spotlight of the world was on a cross on a hill outside of Jerusalem. And he said, I am with that man. Ladies and gentlemen, your journey of faith may take time. Do not get discouraged too soon.
The second thing that I love about this passage of Scripture is the multifaceted nature of salvation. Now, if you have come from any trajectory, your lane, and I'm going to use the uh, kind of Californian eight-lane freeway idea, your theological lane will be crafted by your denomination or your tradition. The Catholics, and uh, I thought, let me go and research on some Catholic websites to make sure I'm right. They basically say, quoting them, that of course Jesus died, of course he went to the cross, of course he rose from the grave, but our salvation, and I quote, is by doing things like loving God, loving your neighbors, living a righteous life, and repentance. The Catholic faith score. So, so if you're a Catholic, there is this, this notion, my lane of salvation is that it's faith in what Jesus has done and works. If, on the other hand, you're Methodist, and I had a, uh, my teenage years were spent in Methodism, William Barclay wrote all the New Testament, sorry, all over the New Testament, this idea of rebirth or recreation occurs. So if that's your prevailing voice, then what you often talk about is recreation. Beautiful. And, and rebirth as a new creation. But William Barclay was vehemently against the idea of the substitutionary atonement. Use a big word, don't worry about it. Of Jesus. You see, I, I am intentionally opening you up to big words. I, I, I read uh, Thomas um, Schultz, my mind's tired. Uh, what's his name? He started Starbucks. Howard Schultz. I read his two books. You know what Howard Schultz did? He went to Italy and he visited all the Italian coffee shops that he could, fell in love with the product and the culture. He came back to Seattle and he said to his investors, I've got an idea. And he described what he saw in Italy and he said, we're going to put these stores up all over America. And they said, absolutely not for two reasons. One, Americans will not pay more than $1 for a copy. Ah, not so much. And two, they can't cope with big words like cappuccino and latte and macchiato. Well, he said, absolutely not. I can educate the American mind. They are more sophisticated than you think. Mm, they voted in Trump. Um, and um, just saying, just saying, just thinking aloud, just a fleeting comment that ran through my mind. So, so what happened? Eventually, he found investors who got him, who believed that Americans would pay more for coffee and they would become comfortable with language. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to be comfortable with these great rich words. See, have you ever heard of the word expiation? Expiation is this magnificent word because in it, written into the very fiber of its definition says this, that God not only forgives me of my sins, but he forgives me of the sins that others have committed against me. It's the date rape solution. It's that moment when that little girl, which has happened to me, sits across the way from me tears streaming down her face, went to have a drink with her mate. Her drink was spiked. She woke up in his bed, date raped, saying, Chris, how can I cope? And had I not known the wonder and power of expiation, what would I have said to her? With Meryl obviously in the room, holding her we did, and walked her through the wonder and the power of expiation. God forgives us, cleanses us of the sins that are committed against us as well. So every one of our denominations or our traditions gives us a redemptive narrative, a lane that we believe in. The Calvinists, of course, of penal substitutionary atonement. Why? Because Martin Luther wrestled with the legalism that came.
came with them kissing stairs to try to find salvation. And when it dawned on his learned mind that God can cross over and in a legal way take my sin upon himself. When I was 18, 19, and I came to faith, this image, and forgive me, uh, Hannah, for my lack of, of, of legal knowledge, but, but this picture of, of me standing there in the dock and the prosecutor reeling off all the, all the things which I had done wrong, and I knew them to be true. This was not a time you can hoodwink a judge. Excuse me, judge, it wasn't me. Blame my sister. You know, blame my brother. But if my dad wasn't an alcoholic, I wouldn't have done that. All, the, all of that stuff just whittles away in this great and dramatic moment of divine judgment. And the judge looks and says, what do you say? And I say, sir, guilty as charged. Someone gets up and tiptoes across, permission to advance the bench, Your Honor. Yes. Whisper, 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 come back. The judge shakes his head, forgive my dramatic imagination, way too many crime TV shows. Whisper, 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 he walks back and he says, well, I don't know why, which of course God knows why. I don't know why, but Jesus has said, he will take your punishment for all of your sins. He will go to prison on your behalf. I sat in an L.A. court of law sued by angry congregants. I know what that feels like. It's remarkable. Now, into this context, can I say, there is a rich body of salvation truth. Isn't it amazing? Jesus could have spoken to Nicodemus about atonement or the Passover, things he knew, language he understood. But it's as if Jesus takes him out of that Jewish language and he introduces a new idea. You must be born again. And this learned man with a Greek background, with all the wealth he has, faces something he says, I have no understanding of. And Jesus pricks his prophetic curiosity. I need to know what it means. Now, my third piece there's three Holy Spirit pieces. How are we doing? Is it, are you okay? The first is Nicodemus. The second is understanding the salvation lanes that you were schooled into and allowing God to enlarge that ever so much. But the third is the Holy Spirit is gloriously represented. Yeah, I'll read the verses to you and we'll open them up ever so briefly. Truly, truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the Spirit. For flesh gives birth to flesh, but Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Flesh gives birth to flesh. You must be born of water and the Spirit. Now, theologians debate, is it born of water when the water breaks and I'm naturally born, or is it baptism? I kind of think it's naturally born. And I'll tell you why. Because he goes on to speak about flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to spirit. But let me explain something to you. When sin comes into our lives, what it does is it devastates our humanity. Why would a 16-year-old beautiful girl stand in the mirror, and I'm not trying to be weird, stand in the mirror and find an inability to love herself? What is that? What is that? As she looks at this gorgeous developing body and there is an inability to find affection. Do you know what the number one gift was two years ago to graduating girls at high school in Orange County? The number one gift 
graduating high school in Orange County was breast augmentation, a boob job. What the parents were saying, honey, you're just not good enough. Now, if you want to have one when you're 30, 40, 50, that's one thing. But to give an 18-year-old who's still discovering the wonder of her humanness, the, the, the beauty of her, the essence of her being as a woman, oh, honey, you ain't good enough, baby. Dad and mom really have to help. Just 15, 20 grand. Let's fix this thing. You see, sin devastates us. Our self-perception and the brokenness that creeps in with it. And what I love about this verse is flesh gives birth to flesh, but not the conversation around sin and its destruction only, but the wonder of our humanness. Do you know how much your humanity is restored to you at salvation? Meryl and I were in Cape Town a few years ago. We had a brief afternoon time, and she said, Oh, babe, can we go to Kirstenbosch Gardens? I looked at the time. I said, all right, we've got to go quickly. We dashed, they parked. We ran inside, ran up the mountain a little bit. And, and half of the gardens were all rumble as they were kind of redefining the gardens. And part of it was majestic. And then looking out over the Cape Flats as the kind of somewhere between pollution and setting sun and dust just created this orange elegance just across the space. And I'm chatting away. And the next minute I look to my wife. She's about 15 paces to my right. And she is weeping. No, this is sacred ground. I've just got to move back. I don't know how long it took, maybe 10, 15 minutes. And the tears sighted. I said, are you okay? She looked at me with tears. She said, Chris, I was born in Zambia. That's right, honey. And she said, the Africa's in my heart. And she said, the beauty is invigorating me. She said, Chris, I am most fully alive when I see beauty. And I knew it because the gospel restores the wonder of our humanity. It's not just a ritualized journey towards an eternal redemption. It brings full humanness back to me. I'm fully man. Meryl is fully woman. It's not something sinful, flesh gives birth to flesh. It's something exquisite where I discover the wonder and the joy of my humanity because I'm imago Dei, I am made in the image of God and it's something to be celebrated. And my art and my words and my vocabulary and my painting and my creation and my carpentry are all parts of my humanness fully described and fully displayed and that's flesh giving birth to flesh. Spirit giving birth to spirit. Now, you might not agree with what I'm about to say, but that's fine. When Jesus said you must be born again, he's introducing this notion of spirit gives birth to spirit. Now, God gifted me a son when I was almost 41. When I left South Africa, yeah, when I left South Africa, I laid having a boy on the altar. I said, Father, I love my two girls, which I do. I'm nutty about them. I said, I love my girls. But if you've called us to the nations, that we have to lay down the right of me of having a son, I will do it. Well, about a year or so in, details aren't that important. God begins to work in Meryl and my heart, and we have our boy. And, and I, I love my boy. I want you to know that. I, I was driving home the other day, and I saw a, a thrift store, an op shop. And I know my boy, he's polished, long hair. I actually saw he's got his nails painted. So, oh, well, that's interesting. And um, so, so he wants a pair of corduroys. Apparently corduroys, like vintage corduroys, are, are like super cool. 
So, so I, I pull into this drugstore quickly and I find a pen. And, and I, I shoot Meryl a picture. What do, you, what do you think, babe? It's kind of a rusty, mustardy color. And uh, she says, uh, uh, so anyway, I'll buy them. But he sends me a picture. That's how I know he's got a painting on, on his nose. And, and he says, Dad, that's so cool. And I cut them short. See, here's my boy. And when he was on the JV soccer team, he was the go-to penalty kicker. And, and he, he got seven out of seven or six out of six or probably 30 out of 30. I lose, I lose count. But, but, but I, see, I was so proud of him. But he also lied. He was also deceptive. And he told us he was doing one thing and then he did something else. Now, now, do you think that that boy that makes me so proud and I'm so stoked and he's a surfer and I love going down the beach to watch him surf and when he hangs pen and he stands on the edge there and he's styling, I am as happy as can be when I sit across the way from a man and I say, you've lied to me. What do I do? This boy is my boy. Keon Vinant. Sorry, buddy. You're a liar. You're a deceiver. You're a cheat. I unvenant you. You're no longer a venant. See, that's what we do with salvation. Spirit gives birth to spirit. The father doesn't lean over the edge of heaven with the son sitting by his side and say, oh, my boy, Chris. Look at him preaching. Aren't you proud? Still got fire in his bones. And three days' time, I whatever, blow out. And, and, and then this is... Born again, this one, unborn again. Shouldn't have done that. And then, oh God, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Okay, you can be born again, again. Three weeks, unborn again, again, again. No, 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 you can be born again, 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 again. You can be unborn again, again. What are we doing with our congregations that we believe God is the subtle, nuanced, emotional God who so readily dismisses our redemption as if it was a fleeting moment of emotion rather than a substantive moment of legislative decision. I am born again by the blood of Jesus. I have been bought by the blood and I have been washed by the Spirit and I am born again, ladies and gentlemen, and eternity lies before me as as I coexist with God in all of His mystery, majesty, and beauty. Now you may say to me, but Chris, if you can't lose your salvation, doesn't that make you want to go wild? You're kidding me? Is there anything more exquisite than looking into my Father's face and finding grace and mercy? Doesn't Paul say in Romans, it's your goodness that leads me to my knees? Flesh gives birth to flesh. We rediscover our humanity. Spirit gives birth to spirit. I am born again, and I never lose it. My spiritual father, a guy called Carl, grew up in a denomination that believed you can lose your salvation and there's a rapture. It's a dreadful combination. He was about 12 years old, and he realized, because his dad was the pastor, if you go to movies, not only do you lose your salvation, but if the rapture happens, you stay behind. So one Saturday afternoon, he decides to nip out to the local matinee. He watches the movie, whatever the movie is. And, of course, tiptoes home at about 12, 5.15. The house is dark. The doors are unlocked. And there's no one home. And he realizes the rapture's taken place. He falls on his face, weeping. Jesus, don't leave me behind. Don't leave me behind. Upon which his father walks in and says, I think we've got something to talk about. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what on earth would have happened if movies keep us out of heaven? What happens with us? Netflix, Hulu, 
ABC, Netflix. I know you don't know what that is, Rob. You're still in, you've still got a landline. I mean, you're that old. <laughs> now, ladies and gentlemen, you don't have to agree with me. But, but for me, the wanderers who kick the ball down is to present a gospel that is full, a redemption that is eternal, and a salvation that is complete. Two more little pieces about the Spirit, and we are done. Verse 8. The wind blows where it pleases, so you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. This is one of my favorite verses. I'm more of an entrepreneurial guy. I'm less of a planner. I'm always curious by people who've got five-year plans that follow Jesus because I'm pretty much guaranteed they won't happen. See, I, I, when I sit with pastors, certainly in Southern California, the number one thing they all ask me is, why are our people so ridden with fear and anxiety? And I don't know if I have the answer, but maybe written into the answer is our need to control. Our need to control. I remembered while I was preaching this morning a story Leon van Dahl told many, many years ago of giving his grandkid a chocolate. I don't think the family ate lots of candy or sweets or lollies for you Aussies. And um, so what happened was this little girl got the chocolate and she held it in her hand like this. And, and Grandma came and said, Honey, please, please open. No, 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 this is my chocolate. I'm, not, I'm holding on to this chocolate, she said. No, honey. No, no, I'm keeping my chocolate. I'm holding on to my chocolate. And eventually her dad came and persuaded her, and she opened her little hand, and the chocolate leaked its way through her fingers because it had now melted. And she opened up the candy wrappings, and there was nothing left to enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, when we try to hold and control, we'll end up knowing there is nothing left. We're fearful and we're anxious because we really are not dependent on the Holy Spirit. 58, God says to me to plant again. And like you, I say, God, you are nuts. Planting's a young man's game. You don't do it at my age. At my age, it's when you're the top of your earning capacity. It's when you lead the largest church. And I give all these reasons, and I can feel God smiling at me, and it irritates the heck out of me. But you see, every prayer I pray, God answers me with the same question. Can you trust me? Can you trust me? If the wind blows where, please hear me, if the wind blows where it pleases, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. All of us are on our tippy toes with open hands and open hearts saying, God, do with me as you please. I control nothing and I hold nothing. The wonder of a Christian walking in these ways is that precise story that God wants to delight us with last minute changes. All of our great plans that we execute in systematic style, God comes and disrupts them and rearranges them because He blows where He pleases. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit of God. Why have you planted churches in so many nations and cities? Why have so many men and women gone from this community into, un and the kind of the overriding testimony would go something like this, I never thought I would. Because they're people who are obedient to the wind blows where it pleases. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit of God. You know how funny it is, honestly? You know, the three of the young guys in our community here. The average age in our church is 22. You know how funny that is? 
I'm the only one who's 60. Meryl's the only one who's 56. We've got two friends who are in their 40s. We have three couples who are in their early 30s. Everyone else is in their 20s. And I say to them, what on earth do you want to do with granny and grandpa? Because the wind blows where it will, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit of God. And sufficient to say, my dear friends, it's a journey of trust to reopen our hands and open our hearts and watch, see what God will do. Plan if you want, but be prepared for God to change our hands. A story which has come to mind. I hope it helps. I was teaching in Taichung, Taiwan many years ago, and I'm in the hotel room. I know we're moving internationally. I do not know where. I keep praying, God, where do you know the kind of cross-eyed, frown, sweating, God, where do you want us to go? I'm being so diligent with my prayer as I walk up and down. And I'm, where do you want us to go? Where do you want us to go? And it's like he stops me in my tracks and he says, you're asking the wrong question. What do you mean? He told me we're going to go into the nations of the world. He told me I'm going to spend the rest of my days in foreign shores. Where do you want me? He said, the wrong question. I said, well, what's the right question? And he says, to whom do you want to send me? And I realized it wasn't a question of geography. It was a question of humanity. I should have known then he would send us to people that we had nothing in common with. For the next 14 years of our life, we spent pastoring people we had nothing in common with. Lastly, I'll read the verse and I'll land with this. For one for whom God has sent speaks the words of God I read that badly. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. You know one of the things I love about this church? Every time I go back home, whether it was South Africa back then or L.A. now, is I'm stirred to believe God for more of His Holy Spirit because of you. It's been such a sweet, easy anticipation that God will give His Spirit without limit. That's a curiously challenging verse, is it not? I mean, he's suggesting that you've got an open checkbook, isn't he? Isn't he saying, well, you can ask for more of my Holy Spirit? Or is it that our everyday is so preoccupying and our management of our world so complicated that we don't pause for a moment and anticipate the Spirit without limit? I'm challenged by this. I wish I could tell you 10 stories of, well, this happened to us. No, I like to go and challenge because there is an open-handedness that God wants to pour like liquid fire, His Holy Spirit over us without limit. And it's not just E minor doing so-so and having fire curtains come. It's in our everyday where God comes and supernaturally gives us more and more and more of His Spirit. I land with two stories. Developing a friendship with a guy called Alan Scott from Paul Ray, Northern Ireland. Anyone know, anyone know that? I went to Northern Ireland um, two years ago, I think it was, and I was told, you've got to go to Paul Ray, and there's a revival happening. I said, well, what does this revival look like? So they described it to me, and it sounded more like healthy church than revival. Anyway, I went up there, met great people, didn't meet Alan then. But amongst other things, they just landed there and said, God, I believe in your supernatural power. I believe you want to pour your Holy Spirit out on us more and more and more. And so what they did in pure naked bravery, they took a chair and they plonked it into Paul Ray, Northern Ireland, just outside of Belfast, in the middle of the, of, of the, kind of the, the marketplace there, and just started praying as people walking past, Hi, is there anything you'd like us to pray for? Is 
can imagine these people just sort of walking around them like this, like, who are these nutheads? And then one person who tried to say something back to the group said, my granddaughter is under makeup or my granddaughter is dying of cancer. Well, we would love to pray for you. So I promised to just leave that with them. They prayed for grandma and her granddaughter to get better. And so they found courage to do it once more next week, and then it began every day of every week, and then it became every week of every year, and then it became every year of every decade, and almost everyone in the town of Colerain has been prayed for by the vineyard in Colerain, and they have seen miracle after miracle, sign after wonder, people just sitting there in the high street, in the town square, with a chair saying, is there anything we can pray for you about? Francis Cam, many of you would have heard of, God sent an electric mega church in, in uh, the Bay Area, San Francisco, way too impressed by the large churches out there, way too impressed. God sent him to the Bay Area, one of the poorer areas of the Bay Area, and he said, God, what am I doing here? God said, I want you to become the pastor to this neighborhood. And he literally went with a buddy door to door saying, hi, is there anything we can do to help you? And he put some books and stamps on his back, some gates were open, but one, then two, then three doors began to open, and he prayed for people, received the hand of God, and the call of God was out limits. Ladies and gentlemen, he now has two restaurants, and those two restaurants are gateways to convicts that they come out of prison. He employs them, they get skilled and equipped, and then they get transitioned back into society as the next cons come, and that's an example of what God has done by a man in obedience going to San Francisco and knocking on the door saying, is there anything I can do for you? Spirit without limits. Keep gates built, but you know. Keep gates built. Very, very different than us. Leads a church in Kingston, just outside of London, on the edge. I was on the phone to Keith the other day, and he said to me, you know, we just had the Kingston Fair. And everyone in Kingston, it's a big thing. It's on the Thames. It's a beautiful time. It's kind of the fall. And um, he said, uh, so what we decided to do, Keith, he said, we decided to get a tent, get a section, and something to this effect, prayers and the interpretation of dreams and visions. Keith, what are you talking about? Isn't that amazing? I'm brave in certain things, and I'm strong and confident, but, but I'm a wuss. I know. He said, Chris, we opened the booth. The fair opened at 2 o'clock in the morning. He said for over three hours, we had a line out of the door of people wanting prayers to be prayed, dreams and visions to be interpreted because God gives you spirit without limits. I'm purposely taking it away from the pulpit because we're overly dependent on the celebrity few when, in fact, the Holy Spirit wants to empower the priesthood many. He wants to take it out of the buildings that are small, isolated, and hidden into the public spaces where men and women can encounter the living God without limits. And that means we're all players in that game. Would you pray with me? Come on. Let's open our, I mean, let's just put your hands open on your, on your laps if you don't mind. Oh, God, how wonderful your scripture is. How glorious the story of Nicodemus is. A doubter, a man of wealth and influence, 
that you for all of time's sake, you told this great story from Doubter to Martyr, the climax of him taking his wealth and publicly associating himself with you. What a great story. What a great story our salvation so gloriously reflected in many words and ideas. How amazing is your Holy Spirit. Restores my humanity, empowers my redemption, keeps me on my tippy toes in constant obedience and pours forth your Spirit without limit. You're amazing. I thank you for this incredible church. I thank you for the week we've had here. I know this is the beginning of a new year. We're kicking the ball down the field. We're saying, come on, 100 forwards, as we all own this adventure. May we grow in you and watch and see just what you will do with the people that open their hands, that open their hearts, and say, yes, Lord, count me in. In Jesus' name.